0: Welcome to the Scalable Real Estate Investing Podcast, where we discuss the most scalable strategies, tools, and approaches to successfully invest in real estate. Learn how to make the most impact of your time, automate your real estate investing business, find off-market deals with minimum time invested, and leverage your capital to create as many income streams as possible so that you can achieve true financial independence. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Mason Clement. Hi, Scalable Investors. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Scalable Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Mason Clement. And today we have with us Chris Sands, who is the founder of Sands Investment Group, which is a commercial real estate broker specializing in brokering net lease properties. And to date, they've done more than 1,400 transactions valued at more than $4 billion. So really excited to have him on to go into detail about their approach, and shine some more light on the brokerage side of things. So let's bring them in. All right, Chris, thanks a lot for joining us. How's it going today?
1: It's going great. Thank you. How are you doing, Mason?
0: Doing good. Can't complain. Things are humming along, you know? Should be here. Yeah. Uh, Why don't we just get things started off? I like to ask every guest that's on our show to just go into a little bit of background about themselves. I did mention that you are the founder of sands investment group and everything but that doesn't obviously do justice on your background so let's get into that
1: yeah so i appreciate you uh giving us the opportunity to join forces today and talk for a little bit we uh started sands investment group in 2010 and we are a uh a an investment platform that helps Both investors buy and sell commercial real estate, primarily in the retail, industrial, medical office, and office sectors throughout the country. Uh, We have six offices throughout the country, Santa Monica, California, Austin, Texas, Atlanta, Georgia, Philadelphia, and uh, Charlotte, and Charleston. Uh, We have about 100 people in the firm, and uh, we've just closed successfully, uh, close to our 4,000th transaction or property sale in the last 10 years and just shy of about $5 billion in total volume. Uh, But, you know, I think those are all interesting numbers and I only say those just to kind of give you a little highlight of what we're working on our day-to-day, but the core of really why we started this and what really was the impetus in the creation was was working at a much bigger firm um, in the early 2000s from 2005, 2008 or nine. Um, and you know, I was loving what I did in terms of, you know, being able to work with investors and help them buy and sell real estate. But wanted saw this void in the marketplace to create an opportunity where a firm was based on a culture that was founded on sort of teamwork and collaboration, honesty, integrity, doing the best for the client and the, and the investor rather than what worked for them, but then also kind of filled your pocketbook to the best degree. And I found that when you could kind of rewire the program by virtue of taking care of the client and seeking first to serve That in return you'll always be taken care of and then creating a time mindset of collaboration and teamwork and information sharing shared database and kind of having this overall mantra that's one of my favorite african proverbs which is together alone you can go fast but together you can go far um, we've been really blessed to be able to create what we've created over the last 10 years and uh, i'm excited to see what the good lord has in store for us in the future ahead
0: Okay, good. Um, And before I forget, can you like turn the light on in your room or something? It seems like lighting, you're in a shadow and it's hard to see you. <laughs> it kind of goes in and out. I don't know if you can change anything about that, but it's definitely better. All right. Perfect. So um, I realize that your firm website says that you specialize in net leases, triple net lease and... I understand it, but maybe listeners don't, they're not familiar with that. So can you discuss what that is and why a tenant might agree to this type of lease?
1: Yeah, you know, it's moving in this direction more and more from a tenant to landlord relationship, but from a basic elementary layman explanation, what triple net leases mean is that uh, when you own a real estate property, you have certain expenditures that are including taxes, property taxes, insurance that you have to carry on the property. There's common maintenance that occurs, for example, utilities, right? Electric, water, you know, you name it, You, you know, the basics. And then you've got also common area maintenance, external maintenance, landscaping, you know, paint, et cetera. And so what a triple net lease means is that the tenant actually pays for those expenditures rather than what some people might be familiar with in terms of like an apartment uh, building where they occupy one of the units and maybe they just pay for, you know, their cable and for the electric bill and some water, and then the owners of the building pay for all the rest. In this instance, the tenant pays for all taxes, insurance, all utilities, even sometimes external and common area maintenance. And so, from an ownership standpoint, it's very attractive for a investor to buy a triple net lease investment because uh, it allows for a very passive sort of coupon clipper some people like to call it mailbox money investment uh, and the reason why tenants are willing or open to actually doing that is because landlords have gotten privy to it over the years and have sort of said i don't want to keep doing the reconciliation of the accounting and since more and more landlords are kind of demanding this is the direction of where we want to go when a tenant wants a space enough you can kind of say hey this is the lease structure of which we'd operate on a triple net lease basis and so now you're starting to see it go across all genres. I think eventually you'll even see apartment buildings move to that in, in the future, just because it seems to be sort of the most simplistic way to be an owner of a property. Okay, but currently it's just most common with retail. Is that correct? Retail is, a, is definitely the predominant sector that has that. Uh, you see it in office and medical office starting to happen more. Um And yeah, industrial definitely has a version of that. Sometimes it's still what's called modified gross, where maybe the tenant pays for some and the landlord pays for some. The other version is gross lease. And that's kind of where you see the tenant pays for almost nothing and the landlord pays for all. That's starting to become less and less across all product types. So yeah, I do think over time, it'll become more equal across different product types. But for now, retail is definitely the most predominant.
0: Okay, and say if you had like a shopping center and you have common area maintenance, do they allocate that based on square footage rented across each tenant?
1: Yep, it's based on their square footage that they occupy. They come up with what's like a pro forma version or their pro rata version, I should say, of the, of the amount of the expenses and that's what they're responsible for.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. All right, so on the, the broker side, obviously you're, you're matching up buyers and sellers so how does your team go about finding these willing sellers and sourcing these deals
1: we have a tremendous uh you know physical inertia that happens in terms of lead generating so our average broker makes about four to five hundred lead generating calls a week Um, we're profiling and researching and creating data lists that we have been able to uh actuate through you know public record information and then we're Making you know in, in, in inquiries to owners with usually something that we've got either a property for them to buy or a lead of which we have a buyer that's interested in buying their property to kind of get a conversation started um, and so yeah, it's a plethora of lead generating calls this is one we also have a very heavily trafficked website that thanks to our marketing team and division we've been able to drive a tremendous amount of traffic to the website and that's been able to be a good lead generator as well where owners that are interested in selling we go to our website and then uh, you know, reach out and show it. We'll go through the process of seeing if they want to sell based on doing an analysis for them. And where a lot of our businesses, word of mouth, referrals, doing podcasts, doing interviews, et cetera. And then people hear us and reach out because uh, they want to use our platform to be able to help them with the disposition or acquisition of properties.
0: Okay. So when you're working with a seller, I know it depends on the market, but what's the typical cap rates that you're kind of telling the seller that they could expect? And it also probably depends on the property type, but what's your range usually?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, but it's tough because every property, every genre has like a little different range. But you know, a cap rate is basically just the unleveraged rate of return that you get on an investment. Meaning, if you didn't put any debt on it, that's what you would get. And so, right now, for something that's got a lot of credit behind it, like uh, you know, let's say a corporate lease, Chick Fil A, or a Chase Bank, or something with very strong corporate financials behind it. Um, you will have uh, somewhere in the realm of like a four to 5% return on the investment. If it's something that's got less credit behind it, then, you know, like some of the gas station deals, or maybe some of these uh, operators that are more franchisee based or backed, then those will usually slip up into like that seven to 8% return. And so usually we're kind of in a range between four and 8%, depending on the credit behind the lease that's backing it.
0: Okay. Yeah. That was my next question. You mentioned like Chick-fil-A or I don't even know if they do franchises, but I guess, or a lot of these, they do or not?
1: Chick-fil-A does not franchise out. No, but some, a lot of other operators do. So it's not abnormal. Like McDonald's franchises out there, you know, they have multiple franchisees. Chick-fil-A does, they have, they're all, they're basically all corporately backed leases. Whereas you can get a, and, and and let me make this nuance. The lease will always be backed by the credit of Chick-fil-A or McDonald's, but they, some, they will franchise it out to operators that own the franchise of that specific store. It doesn't mean that they're on the hook, though, for the lease. Does that make sense?
0: Okay.
1: Whereas you'll see other concepts like Taco Bell. Taco Bell out there and in the real estate market will have some properties that are backed by the corporate lease by Taco Bell. And then there's others that are actually Taco Bell franchisees that are the operator that sign on that lease for that property. Whereas Chick-fil-A, if you buy a Chick-fil-A today in the marketplace, every one of those leases is signed by Chick-fil-A corporate. And then what they do have is franchisees that they will sub they'll franchise out the store, but their financial obligation on the hook is not tied to that in terms of like the operator is not the one signing on the lease.
0: Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because then that's going to determine, like you said, it, it's going to impact the cap rate because it's impact, it's different balance sheets that are backing that lease. So, correct. Oh, huh. all right. I have not considered that before. So, does your team use, like, you know, it's a, obviously a, a very large country and there's a lot of different markets. So, how does your team whittle it down in terms of do you use minimum populations or certain demographics or certain parts of towns? How do you all do that?
1: Uh, well, yeah, I, we have a couple of ways we do it. We, the company's broken up. Every broker identifies with a certain specific focus or they, get like, they become a master black belt or we call them sort of Navy SEALs of a product type. So we've got a team that focuses on auto and anything within the auto sector. We have a team that focuses on daycares, drugstores, banks, QSR, which is quick service restaurants, uh, grocery stores, you name it. And so with that, it allows them to really focus on anything across the country within that subsector. What you'll find is that there's certain investors that don't mind buying secondary and tertiary real estate, and there's certain investors that only want to buy primary location real estate. And so what's neat neat about the industry, is there's a wide array of buyers for properties, no matter what the subsector is. So it's, we don't really look at something and go, Oh, we're not going to work on it because it's too small of a market. It's more of, all right, how do we identify the buyer pool for it for that specific market? And, you know, different pro- buyer profiles is really our job is to go out and identify and give access to that so that owners can maximize the value of their real estate when they want to sell.
0: Okay, and so could you go into a little bit more detail about your typical buyer profile? Is it private equity funds or individual on the POPs? Or uh, like it's,
1: it's, all, it's four food groups primarily. It's private equity, high net worth finance, private individuals. It's developers. It's the REIT real estate investment trust and institutional sector. And then it's actually the tenants themselves. So a lot of the tenants own their real estate and we work with them to structure corporate finance deals and selling properties that they own and unlocking the actual real estate behind it.
0: Okay. And I guess the sellers are usually the same type of profile. Just uh,
1: Yeah, it's just reverse. Every buyer is a seller is what we kind of say. So
0: yeah. Okay. Interesting. So the, the name, Sands Investment Group, it, it kind of, at first pass, it seems like maybe you're also investing in things. So does your firm ever take on its own proprietary positions and properties?
1: Yeah, about four years ago, we shifted our focus from solely doing, assisting other buyers and sellers to doing it to equally invest in capital with our own money and as well as other people's money. And so we've got started with friends and family and it's continuing to expand. And so if people are interested, we do put, it, put that out there that we are, doing you know, individual and portfolio acquisitions for properties and basically creating an investment return to the investor like a preferred return um, with some project- projected returns as well. And so because of our purview in the market and the amount of transactions we've done, we've got a really good pulse on it. And so I think it gives a lot of investors a bit of a leg up in terms of investing with us rather than just somebody who's doing it that doesn't have the, re- the pulse that we have because of our entire brokerage community that we've been able to build across the offices.
0: Okay, so you said friends and family, but you're not necessarily syndicating deals, or are you? No, we of... are.
1: We have other people's money. I mean, it's, I say that terminology loosely. It should be anybody. It doesn't mean to be like a bloodline or a neighborhood buddy. It's uh, <laughs> anybody that's interested in investing as long as you're an accredited investor.
0: Okay, so primarily 5060 offerings, stuff yep. like that. Yep. All right. Interesting. So um, with COVID and everything, I know y'all look at a lot of different types of retail operations and I feel like it's one that was probably hit the hardest along with obviously hotels and the travel industry, but how has that affected your deal flow? And well, I guess on the broker side and investment side, because I feel like it could potentially open up a a wide, like a a vast ocean of opportunities, but are you seeing that? Or what do you think?
1: I mean, I I think that it hit a pretty deep wound for initially, but it, it You know, casual dining, anything where restaurants were shut down, we saw a big pullback, Uh, you know, entertainment, retail where movie theaters and certain things alike got impacted significantly. But honestly, I think that there was still fast food restaurants that did quick, you know, kind of did take out, et cetera, that some of our operators had better months during COVID than they have ever before. So I think that it it was based on geographically where they were located is how deep it got impacted. And the time frame that it got impacted, was low enough that it wasn't long enough that I think we saw a deep enough wound. So right now with the resurgence of interest and buyers back at it, you know, we're seeing a buyer pool as eager as it was prior to COVID for a similar type product. So I think, you know, casual dining has still got a ways to go before it comes back with a lot of these businesses still having to have, you know, patio seating, et cetera, and that kind of stuff. But I think in general retail, is always going to be it's could shift from the way we do things now a little bit with the virtual world that we live in but i do think overall people still if anything what's been exacerbated in this covid experience is how much people demand and desire still human interaction and our personal communication and so with you know quarantines across the country you know everyone complaining about not being able to get out and socialize and do things that just i think if anything it actually showed what the world would look like if we completely became like e-commerce driven only and there was no more retail, I think people would lose their mind. So in many respects, I think actually it's given a little bit more of a birth to the desire of why retail is so important in terms of like our health quotient, just in terms of like getting out and doing things outside of our home and having that interpersonal connection with other human beings.
0: Okay, so do you see it as, I mean, obviously some retail still has to go away so do you see it as just a, maybe a smaller footprint, but definitely still something there?
1: Yeah, I think, I think concepts will learn how to operate more efficiently and more functionally. But I, I, still, I don't think that the experiential part of walking into a department store will be gone forever. Right, and even with movies and entertainment, I don't think that people still thrive to go out and do something on a Saturday night or a Friday night or whatever. And so I, I just would be blown away if everybody just succumbed to living in their house and doing everything via click a button, and working off their iPads, I think that people would lose their mind. And so that, to me, was the biggest eye-opener from the COVID experience that we're still working through.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of people are, have been losing their minds and <laughs> trying to get outside more, and yeah, on the verge of it. So, yeah. um, so you kind of hit on this earlier about uh, the, the impact of COVID, depending on the geographic location of the property in the market but are you seeing certain areas of the us doing better or worse than others like the south versus north or east west or what do you see
1: i mean it's interesting you ask that in that you know i think that uh there were certain hot spots that got impacted with higher rates of you know viruses at uh, the virus impacting communities but you know, I think, yeah, the Sunbelt markets have always done strong, no matter what. Like, I think if you take the southern half of the state, a lot of the country, I mean, a lot of the states did fairly well through COVID. Um, But I we're selling real estate throughout the entire country, and people aren't, you know, shying away from a good investment property in Illinois or Michigan or New York or the Northeast, for that matter. So, I don't think I think there's sound fundamental real estate is always going to be sound fundamental real estate, regardless of, regardless of whether or not a pan, you know an epidemic or a pandemic in, impacted something for a period of time. Uh, so I think you got to go back to the intrinsics as to why somebody invests in a deal and really kind of focus on those and also recognize where it got impacted based on something, whether it was temporary or this is a long-term issue. So in a nutshell, no, I don't think there was any one area that was like, man, because of COVID that got obliterated. I don't see it that way
0: Okay, or even like on the, on the upside, like, Oh, these guys are just, this area is doing really well. Like I guess, yeah, I mean, like States.
1: Florida, Florida was like the number one, you know, it uh, was the number one, you know, a case state. I think it was for, you know, I think in like May or June with uh, you know, COVID positive tests. And I still, the real estate in Florida was, I think still was one of the, some of the most attractive in the country. So it's interesting. It's not like one correlated to the other, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Okay. I would say I, that like if you look at a retailer and it was in a market like, you know, Minneapolis, but then you go to some of these shifting, like say, say take some tertiary markets. Like, I don't know, pick somewhere that's sort of, you know, central located in the country that's more remote, secondary, tertiary markets, and there was like the main casual dining restaurant in that area pre COVID, I think they would have done stayed and sustained. There was an investor for those deals. And now I think that's a tougher buy just because like, who are the usual suspects that are going to take that space? And where is that going to get backfilled by? That's the unknown that investors are getting cautious of right now.
0: Okay. One thing that's interesting I've heard too, a lot of people have been waiting on the sidelines for the next recession, which is kind of here, the next opportunity. And then at that point, because there's so much dry powder, people are just falling over each other, chasing after these deals, and which could potentially, ironically, hurt returns, even though they were trying to have these gigantic returns. Do you feel like that's been happening at all or not so much? What do you, what's your view on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a ton of money out there right now. And so what happens is when, when, deals, when it starts to loosen up a little bit, it seems like, or the market starts to shift, like everyone keeps buying and gobbling up. And so I've read and learned a little bit that a lot of these family offices and like high net worth private equity has been frustrated by the fact that there never seems to be like a, like a tipping point, if you will, where things just keep kind of progressing in that direction, because there's so much competition out there that whenever it starts to alleviate a little bit, people start buying and then pricing gets brought that up back back up again. And so that like supply demand game keeps getting impacted. Right. And so uh, how deep it needs to go before everyone sort of says, all right, we're going to wait. That's the unknown. And as long as money out there is as cheap as it is, and I think that that's why buyers are so interested in using sort of cheap equity or debt, I should say, to go out and buy real estate. That's a compelling story. It's going to be hard for people with the lack of alternative investments out there, you know, in the stock market being so volatile and putting your money in stocks and bonds right now. It's just weird. It's a, CDs and bonds. It's hard to really say, why would I not utilize real estate as an investment vehicle? So that's what I think is creating sort of this unique moment where it's a very attractive investment vehicle for anybody to be interested in right now, given the returns and some of the positive things that happen from ownership.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you and maybe even invest in one of your deals, how do they go about doing that?
1: Yeah, the best, best way to do it is, um, you know, our website is our, our sort of our main attraction and it's at signnn.com. Um, they also, you know, we've got, I'm, um, first one up on the list in terms of <laughs> for better or for worse on our, uh, about us or contact us when you go to our team. Um, and if they have interest in investing in a deal, by, by all means, feel free to reach out. My contact information's on there. And we, you know, at any given point, usually have, you know, between two and probably eight to 10 different investment deals that we're working on that are available for subscription or people interested in investing in. So we're always open to new investors and meeting new people and really look at it from a relationship standpoint, not just, you know, helping you grow your money, but it's about like really understanding what your goals are and what your objectives are. And then, you know, from there, trying to help you invest in deals that we believe would match up well with the criteria of what you're trying to accomplish and the goals with the capital that you're trying to put to work.
0: Okay. And actually, just one more question before we go. Um, You said that your website is a major driver of traffic. So what is your average daily traffic look like for your website?
1: Uh, daily, I, I, Miranda could tell you our our guru and Kim can tell you our marketing gurus. Uh, I know that we probably get somewhere. I don't know what the total number I'd have to go back and look and it'd be probably uneducated for me to speak to a a specific number, but I just kind of go off of like organic search and where we rank without, you know, doing sort of ad pay, pay per click stuff. And, you know, we've been fortunate through our sort of traffic and organic words that we, keywords that we've been able to kind of be on the first page right underneath sort of you know your uh your your paid ads um and so again i'd probably have to default to my team that know exactly what the number is but it's a lot of people and we get a lot of good foot traffic through that that either are buying property from the website or through you know getting interested leads that end up generating through a lead through the website or you know end up uh, calling us because of it to say hey i'm interested in doing something and we either invest with them or they end up selling a property through us or buy one as well
0: okay Cool. Yeah, just curious. It's always something really important in today's uh, online world. So very good. Uh, Well, you know, thanks a lot for taking the time to discuss everything with us here. And maybe do it again soon sometimes.
1: I would love that, Mason. Thank you for your time. And uh, you had a great podcast. So keep up the great work. Thanks.